0: Well, we're um, continuing our series in Colossians today. Uh, It's the second last um, sermon in Colossians. (coughs) Uh, So we're up to chapter 4, verses 2 to (coughs) 6. Colossians 4, um, 2 to 6. This is God's word. Continue (coughs) steadfastly in prayer, (coughs) sorry, Uh, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I make, make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to hear your word together. We ask that your spirit would uh, be our teacher, that he would enlighten uh, these words uh, so that we understand them, Father, and that he brings that conviction to our hearts of, uh, that we can put them into practice. We pray, Lord, that we would be challenged by these words, that we would recognise our obligation uh, to those outside the Christian community. We pray that you'd fill us with a real desire to want to reach the lost with the good news of Jesus. We pray it in His name. Amen. So we've been learning how the gospel reshapes all of life throughout Colossians. And since chapter 3, we've considered how it reshapes our relationships as a church uh, in the home. And last week we looked at how it reshapes our relationships in the workplace But today, in this passage, Paul turns our attention to outsiders. Uh, That's the word he uses, outsiders. And uh, this passage is asking the question, how does the gospel shape the way that we relate to those who are outside the Christian community? Uh, How do we interact with such people so that they come to hear the good news of Jesus? That's the topic of today's passage. And we shouldn't overlook that this passage was written to a bunch of ordinary Christians like what you see around you today. Uh, If you look at the context, remember Paul, he's just addressed husbands, wives, uh, mums and dads, children, ordinary Christians. And he's talking to them about how to reach outsiders. So he's not talking to um, evangelists. Uh, He's not writing to uh, gifted preachers, just normal working class people, people who lived in a culture at that time that was either indifferent to the gospel or even hostile to it. And he's telling us how we can conduct ourselves, how we can live, how we can talk in such a way that people around us hear the gospel through us. And the way that the Apostle Paul lays out here, he doesn't give us a technique for evangelism. He doesn't give us a a script to recite. He doesn't give us a 10-week course to take. Instead, he gives us something that's very straightforward and very doable. And it all comes down to two lifestyle changes. If you're not already doing these two things, then today you need to make two lifestyle changes. The two lifestyle changes are, number one, a lifestyle of prayer and two, a lifestyle of personal witness. So a lifestyle of prayer, that's in verses two to four. A lifestyle of personal witness is is, is in verses five and six. So we need a lifestyle of prayer. Let's look at verses two and four again. Continue, uh, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, at the same time pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So here we see that if we are going to make any meaningful impact with the good news of Jesus in the world, it's going to be based on prayer has its foundations in prayer. And the command is to continue steadfastly in prayer. Steadfast means it's something you keep doing without giving up. Steadfast means unwavering, not occasional. It means resolute, not half-hearted. We can't get distracted from this. This is something that we have to always be doing. Steadfast prayer. So it's similar to when Paul told the Thessalonians uh, to pray without ceasing. Uh, Jesus said, we always ought to pray and not lose heart. And so we have here, it's, this is not some obscure idea. This is not an obscure text. It's a very straightforward passage. It's telling us that we need to be people of prayer, that we need to be people of steadfast prayer. And the fact that we do have to be reminded of this so many times in Scripture indicates that this will be a struggle for us, which it is. Prayer is hard work. It really is hard work. Paul was aware that it was hard work. When he talked about how he was praying for the Colossians back in chapter 2, verse 1, he just said he was struggling for them. He says, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you. And we know that he was talking about prayer because when he mentions Epaphras at the end of the letter who was also struggling again he's talking about prayer paphras was always struggling on your behalf in his prayers it's quite interesting i don't know if you've ever thought about that but sometimes we talk about prayer as wrestling with god and paul in the letter talks about a struggle struggling so wrestling struggle that indicates that prayer is hard work okay have you ever been surprised that um you find it is difficult. It's like we go in in fits and bursts. We dedicate ourselves to prayer and then a few weeks later go, oh, whoops, I forgot about that. Steadfast prayer is hard work. But notice Paul adds to this command, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. He's reminding us there that through Jesus we have complete access to the throne of grace. The Father hears our prayers and answers our prayers. And so if we're actually watchful in our prayers, what will we see? We will see God answering our prayers, He really does. And that will give us so many reasons for thanksgiving, watchful with thanksgiving. And that means that prayer is not just hard work, but it is actually very rewarding work because we are participating with God in the work that He's doing in the world. It's very rewarding work. That's why we should continue steadfastly in prayer. Okay, so what should we be steadfast in prayer for? Well, verses 3 to 4 tell us that we should be steadfast in prayer for open doors. That is, doors to be opened to the gospel of Jesus. And what's interesting about the request that Paul puts in those verses is that he wrote them while he was in prison. Now, if you were in prison and you were writing to someone to make some prayer requests, what would you ask for? Yes, you would ask for an open door, namely a prison door to be opened. Uh, But Paul, even though he's in that situation, there's something more important to him. And that's that the, the word would get out. Not that he would get out, but that the word of God would get out. I mean, if that includes Paul with it, even better. But his focus was he wants the word of God, the the mystery of Christ, that is the gospel. He wants open doors for the gospel in the world. And uh, think about that metaphor of an open door. Why do we have to pray that doors would be opened for the gospel? It's because doors are shut. The hearts of people are closed to the gospel. Society is shut off to the gospel how do we get these doors open? We can't break them down by being argumentative. We can't sneak in the back by deception. There's only one way to get these doors open. There's only one key to get the doors open so that the gospel can go in and change lives. What is the key? There's only one key, prayer. That's what this passage is saying. See, the the spreading of the gospel, the saving of souls, we can't do that on our own. It doesn't matter how clever we are. We can't make someone who is dead, spiritually dead, alive. Only God can do that. And here we see that He does it through prayer. God opens the doors through prayer, which is why we need to pray. Now, one of my favourite stories about all of this Uh, which I have shared before in the evening, so some of you will hear it again. Uh, But it's a story that comes from North Korea. Uh, Did you know that North Korea, before it was officially North Korea, uh, back in 1907, used to be one of the, the strongholds for Christianity in Asia. And back in 1907, there was a famous revival that people today refer to as the Great Revival of Pyongyang. And apparently this revival, it got going with a Saturday evening outreach event where 1,500 Koreans came to faith in Jesus at that one event. And in that same year, it seemed like that event opened up a whole spread. So in that same year, thousands of Koreans came to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Uh, For example, the Presbyterian churches in that area increased their membership in that year by 19,000 people. And the same could be said for all the other denominations of that area. It was incredible. Now, some time ago, a researcher named um, Young Hoon Lee, Young Hoon Lee, uh, don't let him near a car, um, he he did some some extensive research on this the great revival of 1907, and he found that humanly speaking, it could all be traced back to a little prayer meeting that a group of missionaries went over there, gathered together some other Christians from Korea, and they started praying and they did that in 1903. And so for four years, they kept it up steadfast in prayer that God would open a door for the gospel. And four years later, 1907, God opened the nation. So really, and so many people, thousands and thousands were saved. And even today, despite the fact North Korea is listed as the second most dangerous place to be a Christian in the world, behind Afghanistan. And yet there's still 400,000 Christians in there, standing strong. Why? It all goes back to Prayer. People prayed, God opened the door, people are saved. See, that's what happens. When when God's people start praying for the saving of souls, God starts saving souls. See, how are we going to reach Australian people who are indifferent to the gospel, who are sometimes hostile to the gospel? How are we going to reach them? It all starts with prayer. It starts with a lifestyle of prayer praying for open doors. And do you realise this, this is something that all of you here can do? All of you can do this. Remember, Paul was writing not to uh, gifted evangelists. He's writing to the church, to old people, young people. He was writing to busy people and not so busy people. He was writing to children even. Children, do you know you can do this? You can pray that people will come to know Jesus. No know, uncle and auntie, your cousins, your neighbour, you can pray for them. The elderly, the frail, this is something that you can do. You might be too frail to do some of the things you used to be able to do, but you can pray. You're never too frail to pray. See, all of us are called to steadfast prayer, a lifestyle of prayer. And so with that in mind, we need to think through some of the practical implications. How do you actually do it? I've got three implications from this that will help us put it into practice. So the first implication is a steadfast prayer. It actually implies reordering our priorities. Uh, most of us are very busy in life and there are only 24 hours in the day. And therefore, if we are going to um, start a lifestyle of prayer, then we're going to have to reorder our priorities. Uh, because there's always a thousand things that we could let squeeze prayer out. Uh, So we're going to have to look at the things that we have to do in life, the things that we do do, and make some sacrifices. Some things that are of lesser importance need to be replaced with something of high importance, which is prayer. So you're going to have to think, what is it that has to go so that I can be someone who is committed to steadfast prayer? And I think you already know what that thing is that has to go. Another implication of steadfast prayer is that it requires an allocation of time. You're going to have to work out what is a good time in the day that I can do this. For some, the morning works best with your Bible reading. For others, evening works better, again, with your Bible reading. Or you might do it at a meal time. Uh, Some people find going for a daily walk a good time to pray Now, if you own a dog, you've got to walk the thing. You can pray at the same time. Uh, Some people on their daily commute find that a time when they can actually dedicate to prayer. And the point I'm making is there's no rule. There's no one set time that you have to pray. You've got to find a time that will actually work so that you can be doing steadfast prayer, a lifestyle of prayer. Uh, remember last year we talked about family worship. Uh, so parents, make sure you include this prayer as part of your prayers as a family, praying for open doors for the gospel, praying for your unsafe family members and your neighbour. Pray that they would come to know Jesus. Another implication of steadfast prayer is that it implies that we will be praying together as a church. Paul wrote this to a church. As a community, we need to be a community of steadfast prayer. And one of the best ways to do that is to belong to a Bible study group, which is also a prayer meeting, because that's a way where you can regularly gather to pray together. And so a quick word to leaders of Bible study groups, do not let prayer get squeezed out of your weekly gathering or your fortnightly gathering, don't let prayer get squeezed out. It's very easy to allow the the chatter to um, dominate the evening, which, you know, it's lovely to catch up. But don't let prayer get squeezed out, because we're called to a lifestyle of prayer, praying for open doors for the gospel. Let's not be a prayerless church. If we're going to get one thing right, let's make it this, that we commit ourselves as individuals and as a church to praying, to praying for open doors to the gospel. This is the only way we're going to make an impact on our hostile or indifferent culture. Only God can open the doors. He does it through prayer. Therefore, we must be committed to a lifestyle of prayer. That's the first point. Uh, The second uh, change that we may have to make is Along with a lifestyle of prayer, we need a lifestyle of personal witness. And that's in verses 5 to 6. So let's look at those. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So notice how there's two parts to our personal witness. There's our walk and our talk and they're like two sides of a coin. You can't have one without the other. You need a walk and a talk for personal witness. And so our walk refers to the way we live, uh, the way we conduct ourselves. We're to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. So that's just talking about your interactions with those who don't know Christ, and all of us have interactions with people who don't know Jesus every single day, Uh, For some of you, you work alongside outsiders. Uh, Some of you have outsiders in your home, Uh, next door. uh, You have, or you play sport and share hobbies with outsiders. You go to school or uni with outsiders. Um, You go to music lessons or clubs or something with outsiders. All of us have regular interactions And verse 5 is actually calling us to make the most of these interactions. To use the time well, which means that these are opportunities to build relationships. These are opportunities to become a good listener, to get to know people, to understand how they think, to understand what their struggles are and to become a good friend, to become a good colleague, to become a good neighbour. See, don't waste these opportunities. And that means that walking in wisdom must also include being people of integrity. We must have integrity in the workplace, in our home, among our extended family. See, sadly, Christians can destroy the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus by not having integrity. No, that, Sadly, many don't walk in wisdom, but rather walk in hypocrisy. And no one listens to a hypocrite. Or sometimes professing Christians can be hostile toward outsiders rather than reaching out to them. And that is not walking in wisdom. That is foolish. See, we need to remember um, Colossians 3 verse 17, which told us that we're to do everything in the name of Jesus, which means we're always representatives of Jesus wherever we go. People should be able to see the character of Jesus in us. And when they see that, that will demand an explanation. They want to know why you are the way you are. And that will be an opening to talking about your faith in Christ. And this is the whole point of living wisely with outsiders. See, making the best use of time, it, it means to build friendships, but there's a purpose for that. It's so that you can share the good news, so you can tell people about Jesus. And remember, we're now going to be praying for um, open doors to the gospel. Do you realize God's gonna answer that prayer? Which means there are gonna be opportunities coming your way where you will be able to share your faith. Now, how do you go about that? verse 6 let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer each person so gracious speech as opposed to argumentative as opposed to arrogant or angry uh, that goes for all kinds of speech whether that's in person or on social media or joining a protest Let your speech always be gracious. This this is because we want to win people, not arguments. We want to build bridges, not burn them down. Uh, We're not not going out to criticise. We're not going out to condemn. We're going out to tell people that there's a saviour for sinners. You've probably heard the saying that... um, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, which is quite a good saying because Jesus is the bread of life. Uh, but it's, it's one sinner telling another sinner the good news of a saviour. And so what we're doing, we're sharing a message of grace, which means that the way we communicate it must be gracious. What about this other phrase, though? Seasoned with salt. What does that mean? Uh, It's actually fairly straightforward if you think of salt as a seasoning. Now, the the phrase is seasoned with salt. So, salt as a seasoning, what does that do? It adds flavour. It makes something that's bland, tasty. So, think of um, potato chips. You know, without salt, they're pretty ordinary, but you just add a little dash of salt and they become the most delicious thing in the whole world. Season with salt. And that's a little word picture to show us that there has to be something tasty. Something tasty about our conversations. Something delicious about how we talk. Something distinctive. You know, people should be thinking, what is that, what is that taste about the way we talk? And uh, so what is that thing that's meant to be distinctive about our conversations? It is the gospel. The gospel is meant to be the flavour of the way that we speak, uh, the things that we talk about. And uh, the gospel—I mean, the gospel should enhance everything about us. It's, you know, it's like the the seasoning of our lives, so that every part of us is enhanced by the gospel of Jesus. But here, Paul is talking specifically about our speech, that the flavor of our speech should be Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Uh, We we need to be able to turn well to, to talk about all of the topics, all of the issues of the day, all of the things that that people are talking about. We should be able to interact with that, bringing in the gospel. Because that's what Paul says the purpose of this is in verse 6, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. See, the good news, it's a flavour to reach people. It's not enough to live the gospel. We have to talk about the gospel. So our walk and our talk need to be flavoured by Christ. And if that's the case, that means that you're far more likely to talk about Jesus out of the joy of having tasted for yourself that he is good. Remember the psalm I read out at the start? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. See, our speech will be seasoned with salt when we are personally savouring Christ ourselves. You know, when we are enjoying Christ in our own lives, when he is our greatest treasure, when he is the delight of our heart, out of that will just flow talking about him. We won't be able to help it. It'll just be what we want to share. We we'll want to tell people about this wonderful saviour that we know. But if your heart has grown cold toward Jesus, you know, if you haven't been feeding on his word, you haven't been conversing in prayer, you haven't been turning to him in your trials and temptations, then what happens when the opportunity to talk about him comes along? You probably won't take it. See, it's hard to talk about Jesus when you're not savouring him yourself. Uh, this is why behind this, this uh, talking about Jesus, we actually need to rekindle our first love. And out of that, that will then it'll flow naturally. We will want to talk about him. And so it turns out here that the good news that we have to share, it's the good news that we so desperately need ourselves. Every day we need to remind ourselves of the gospel. We need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves of of, of the love of Christ, the wonder of his obedience. We're to to, um, be in awe of his abundant mercy towards sinners such that we are. Really, we we should be trawling through his word, looking at all the ways he is so wonderful. Why knowing him is the greatest thing in the world. And when that's happening, it will just come out. It will just shine out of you. You you won't be able to help talking about Jesus. So this passage, it teaches us that the people Jesus saves must be mission-minded. We must have a lifestyle, a missional lifestyle. Uh, The church is never to be inward-looking only, but we're to have an obligation to those who are outside the Christian community. It's to be part of our lifestyle. We must have a lifestyle of prayer, a lifestyle of personal witness. We ought to be praying for opportunities. We ought to be taking the opportunities. We should be praying that people would have an appetite for the gospel. We should be serving it up in the most gracious Uh, enjoyable, appropriate way, that people might be won to Christ. May God enable us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have reached out to us, that you are a missional God, that though we deserve to be uh, lost forever and shut out in darkness, out of your presence and out of your uh, goodness For all of eternity, yet, Lord, we thank you that you reached out, that you sent your only Son for that very purpose, that he might come like a shepherd looking for that that lost sheep. And we praise you, Father, that uh, yeah, there was all of your grace, that this is not what we've deserved, but what you have chosen to do. You've chosen in love to reach out to us. And we thank you for that, Lord and we pray that we would meditate on this deeply so that we can see that what we have received is what we can now give that we can now reach out to others with this wonderful hope of a savior we pray that you would fill us with your spirit lord that this would become a conviction in our lives so that it becomes a lifestyle that we would be ever praying and ever reaching out and we ask father that in that that christ would be honored that he would be glorified that Many people would see that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords and turn to him before it's too late. And we ask it in his name. Amen.